Thank you for joining us on our journey to the top of Sani. In this final episode, we are joined by Khapa Metsi Malega, the owner of Sani Mountain Escape. Khapa Metsi shares her own story with us, and she tells us how she came to own this wonderful lodge. She gives us some travel tips and tells us about all the attractions in the area. My name is Holger Meyer, and I travel the world in search of beer and adventure. Kappa Metsi, Maleka, welcome to the show. Thank you, Holger. It's a wonderful privilege to have you on the show as you are the owner of one of the most beautiful places in Southern Africa. But before we talk about that, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, where you grew up. Okay, I grew up in in Lesotho. Um, My parents were nurse and teacher. They worked a, a, a little bit in South Africa as well, because as you can imagine, South Africa, the Sotho is an enclave of South Africa. So then, you know, the only opportunities that were there for education and work were in South Africa. And my parents were then educated in South Africa and later on went to the Sotho, where I got my founding education and my tertiary education at the National University of the Sotho. And I started my work career after my degree at the Lesotho National Development Corporation, where I spent close to 15 years and then um, came into South Africa uh, to follow my husband there because he had had a job offer. And that is where I've been since. Based in Joburg or where? Based in Pretoria. Pretoria, Based okay. Based in Pretoria. Houding, yes. Yes, okay. And what did you do at the Development Corporation? At the Development Corporation, my career that spent about 15 years, I started off as a project officer. A project officer really just appraised projects and... Um, presented them to the board because, you know, at the time, it was at the time of sanctions and Lesotho as an enclave was totally dependent Mm. for labor opportunities on South Africa. Mm. And when South Africa mechanized, there was a whole lot of labor that couldn't actually go to the mines anymore. So at the time, government saw it fit to do the development cooperation, which aimed it was uh, for it to industrialize the country or start industrial projects. And um, that would include textile manufacturing and clothing and footwear and some agro industries. So my role primarily was more into textiles. My um, division was promotion of textiles because at the time, um, South Africa had sanctions and Lesotho had duty-free access and a quota-free access into Europe and the U.S. So, and textiles, as you can imagine, um, had an opportunity to create as as much jobs as possible within a very short space mm-hmm. of time. So, yes. And then after that, I think after five or seven years of that, I then went to do my senior degree in Holland, my MBA, and then came back. 
uh, to the corporation in a different capacity of operations. I was a deputy director of operations, which is now a function of looking after those companies that would have been promoted in the first phase to give them an aftercare until hopefully they don't die. Mm-hmm. And was that mainly yes. in Maseru, I assume? That was mainly in Maseru. The development corporation had two sites. Uh, it had a much bigger site in Maseru and another one to the north in Mapuzwe. Basically, what the the corporation did was to provision serviced sites to industrialists that needed a, a service mm-hmm. site or they could provide a factory shell, which is a building, a standard building, maybe a thousand square meters to two thousand square meters. Um, and then the layout, the the investor would just lay it out as their requirements a dim fit. Or thirdly, if it's a specialized industry that needed much more than the standard shells, then the corporation did that as well. Maybe you know, they needed 5,000 with washing facilities or whatever. So those were the three ways that uh, the corporation used to assist uh, industrialists. I've traveled to Lesotho a few times, but I've actually never been on the Maseru side. Is that so? Mm. Yeah. And in South Africa, you, you're obviously an entrepreneur now and you're involved in a lot of projects. Is there anything interesting that, that we want to talk about? Well, in South Africa, yes, I have uh, been involved in a whole variety of projects okay. that spans um, a lot of industries, property development, uh, thermal systems, defense industries as well, related industries. So, Really, it cuts across a whole spectrum okay. of uh, of industries. Mm. But, you know, what drove me back to Lesotho was the potential that tourism had. Yeah. Because when I was uh, still involved with the, with the corporation, we had a whole lot of incentives that we offered, obviously, from training grants to tax breaks. And the tendency was that uh, when these were nearing completion after maybe five years or so, the industrialists would then move to another location and then you would still be landed up with this 5,000 or so people that you needed to to take care of. Mm. So that seemed to be very footloose. So... 25 years later, when I was thinking of of giving back, I looked at industries that were much more stable. And that's how tourism actually came into the fore, because one, it employs people at source. And again, Lesotho is very endowed with the most beautiful Mm. country, you know, in the world, three um, quarters of that is just that raw beauty. So, it's 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 not a coincidence really that you know I had to uh, to look at tourism yeah. because already the, the 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 beauty is there the people are very nice I mean Basotho are the most friendly people that you can get and so it it is very easy no barriers to entry you don't need a factory you don't need too much working capital but maybe a working infrastructure mm. so. 
uh, that that is really what then prompted me to to look at tourism. Okay, and you are now the owner of the world famous Sunny Mountain Escape. How did you how did you find that? A a friend of mine who we used to work together at the development corporation with um, had already started looking, unbeknownst to me, at the potential of tourism mm. in in Lesotho. So we then took a trip um, into the inland. And while we were talking, actually, we were attending a funeral of another friend or a mutual friend. And the whole trip, we were just at awe in terms of the beauty of the country. And, And that is how the discussion started to say, listen, I have also been looking at, you know, tourism because at that time, under the bilateral, South Africa has a bilateral with Lesotho that I already identified the two feasible tourism nodes, one being Sunny Top and the other being Simongo. Mm-hmm. So um, we then began talking and really the seed was then planted in terms of, listen, let's just work together and make this happen. And that's what we did. Um, already there was already this uh, facility that is there. We approached the owner who lived in Underbeck and yeah. hustled the poor man until he said yes <laughs> four years later. <laughs> four years later, wow. that is how long the negotiation took. I think really he just wanted to get rid of us, to be frank with you. <laughs> And then uh, it was around the time when, you know, the World Cup was going to be hosted in South Africa. So the timing was bad for us, unfortunately, because all the banks uh, didn't want to look at anything tourism because any person with a house converted into a BNB and the banks were very exposed so we had gone to this guy to say, listen, give us an option for, I don't know, six months. Let's try and raise the money. And then um, after six months, we should get the money. We'll then buy the lodge. But as bad luck would have it for us, no bank was willing to to fund us, both in South Africa and Lesotho. One, I mean, nobody's really knew about Lesotho to try and get money in Santin for a place at the back of beyond in the city where there's not even a road getting there at the time. So it was a tall order. And also in the city, a lot of people don't still know about Sunny mm. uh, because of its remoteness. Yeah. Um, so our efforts to get money failed miserably. <laughs> so we had to go back, cap in hand to the the owner to say, listen, we have failed dismally to to try and get the money, but um, give us the lodge anyway, and from our profits we will then amortize uh, the cost of the the, the 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 price of the lodge, and that is really basically how we got the lodge. He agreed, and yeah, that is how we still are there. We've paid him fully, and then we we manage the lodge. But then subsequently, my partner then moved to to other opportunities, and that left me alone. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the history. The, a little bit of history, yes, a little bit of history. Um, 
Actually, part of this has been a personal journey for me. I mean, I'm a town girl. I'm not by any stroke. I don't come from the mountains at all. Yeah. Um, I brought up in Maseru. But I then met a girlfriend at high school who came from the highlands. Okay. And we struck a very good relationship. So, um, actually, funny enough, she's gone ahead to settle in London. And I'm I'm stuck in these mountains. <laughs> yeah. She introduced me to. <laughs> so anyway, one vacation, she then asked for me to pay her a visit in the mountains. I had never been at all to the mountains. So there we went, and uh, I was at all with the beauty. In fact, to be frank with you, these mountains seemed so alive to me and so threatening. I mean, I I just felt so small in the presence of these huge things. I I was almost um, claustrophobic, to, to tell you the truth, because we got there during the night, so I didn't see where we were going. So in the morning, when we woke up, I just found ourselves surrounded by these monster things. And, um, but it was so beautiful. And uh, then her father was a general dealer, one of the few general dealers in Mokhotlong. In fact, there were two brothers, uh, her father and uh, his brother. One was in Mapulaneng and the other was in Mokhotlong. So uh, they used to go shopping or do their shopping in Antibay. So, young high school graduates or scholars, we were then sent to do the shopping. You know, the parents would take a little bit of a break and would be sent down the mountain to go and get supplies from Anderbeck. And that is how I actually got to see this little house, you know, there by the border. I remember asking the driver, what is that over there? (laughs) And the borders, the, the the driver says, "Oh no, that is the white man's chalet." Uh-huh. Didn't even know about a chalet. I said, "So what? What happens?" They no, no, it's like a hotel. You know, white people go there and they stay there. And I said, "Wow, okay." And that was it. We went down, underbeck shopping, then up back to Mokotlong. Never gave it a thought, and then <laughs> went back to school. And then another visit later, I got a, a chance to visit again the second time, still the same thing, passed the lodge, went down to Wandbeg, up again. And at the time, you will recall that there was no road. I mean, mm. I never heard about a three happy band, you know. Yeah. Uh, I experienced it for the first time there. So that is my personal history about the affinity of the mountains and the the exposure. Yeah. Now, the history of this anyway is that these traders of whom my friend was whose father was one, they used to actually go down in pack mules to get supplies from Underbeck. And you know, in winter there's no road getting there. So from from a national point of view, those people in the mountains were always at risk in winter of 
I suppose, a lack of supplies. And then the, the UN organizations who at the time were supplying Lesotho with aid, including food aid, had to airlift these supplies regularly during winter, you know, to to get relief for the people there. So apparently what happened is because of the inaccessible roads, I mean, there's an anecdote that says that, you know, if you come from the the children in the mountains are more likely to see an aeroplane before they see a car. In fact, they run away from a car because there's this huge monster that comes towards them and they don't know what it is because um, the place was inaccessible by road. The only access would be maybe flying doctor service Mm. and all these planes that then, you know, dropped food aid and so on. So there was a whole initiative by the UN agencies at the time to try and give relief to the mountain people, but there were no roads. So as I understand, they then approached a few of the traders in Underbeck to try and get this supplies through Underbeck to Mokhotong. And that was the birth of what was called the MMT transport that stood for Maluti Mountain Transport. Mm-hmm. So a couple of these guys apparently uh, clapped together uh, under this contract to get the supplies onto Mokotlo. And because of the treacherous nature of the roads, I mean, this was a trip that took at least a day. So they needed a halfway house by the time they get on top of the pass. Uh-huh. And that is how that house, which started as a three-bedroomed house, I suppose, because I think there were three guys mm. or three uh, entrepreneurs, then at least they would spend the night there and again onward to Mokhotlong the following day and spend another night there and then back to spend another night in Sunny and then down. So it was a big feat. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about maybe 60, 70 years uh, since. And that was the, the birth of, of, of the Lodge. And uh, until the road that comes from Forisbeck, was then born, which was an alternative access as opposed to the one up the pass. Mm-hmm. So that then there was not enough uh, business for them from the tracking business because obviously now there was an alternative, you know, source of supplies from Bethlehem on the other side. Okay. Um, so the the business then fizzled out. And um, but the, the the treacherous nature then lent itself to tourism because then people just wanted to come and see the pass. Uh, so the chalet was there already, and then uh, obviously then it was developed into a lodging for you know adventure tourists, which it is up until today. As you know, it it then um, moved from one family to the other, to the other, to the other, 
until when we uh, bought it over from the, mm. the recent family that we bought it over from. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of activities, now I see all the all the foreign tourists are fit enough to walk up the the pass. All the South Africans drive in their big four by fours. Um, when you get to the top, what what um, what activities are there to do? Um, first of all, yes, we do get a whole lot of international tourists. In fact, in, in, there's a bigger proportion mm. of the visitors that we get, I suppose, because of the iconic nature of Sunny Pass. I mean, it's one of those one-on-one things to do before you die kind of Definitely. place. <laughs> so it's, it's got a whole uh, international iconic pedigree. Uh, so we get a lot of visitors from Germany, from the from continental Europe, Ireland, France, not much from the US and the Far East. And uh, actually what happens is that they get transferred up to the top because Sunny Pass is one day uh, drive mm. for the tourists that go from Devon around to the Cape. So when they get to Wanderbeck, they then get offered this one day trip up, which is packaged in the itinerary from the operators abroad. Okay. So it's sold. That yeah. is. Yeah, so it's sold uh, as part, like maybe Thompson mm. would sell it, you know, as a one-day stop for their tourists who are here for a couple of days and moving all over the show. And we do get also South Africans as well that, you know, self-drive to to the top. But among all of this, we also get, you know, adventurers who would like, you know, hiking mm. they hike the whole way to the top and we collect their belongings at the border post and then they meet uh, their belongings up the up, okay. up to to the pass that is one of the things that actually we offer and there are calendar events of such uh, hikes every year i think there are two hikes that actually just do that they go up the pass and then back to the border or they start at the pass and go down to the border and finish at the pass. Mm. Um, some other activities at the pass when you are there, obviously, um, it's just the sheer beauty of being on top of the clouds, which normally you are when you are there. Um, we have horse rides on our Basuji ponies, which, as you know, they are very similar to the um, to the Shetland ponies and well adapted to the alpine climate that we we have mm. up there. Um, we have hikes also. We have historical places of interest. We have some Bushman paintings. Um, we have Hodgson's Peak, which apparently is where this Hodgson sky was uh, was um, killed there on some skirmish or other. Um, we have also trout fishing okay. along the river, on the sunny river there. And also, one of the things that are very endemic uh, for bird watchers as well, I mean, 
we have a whole lot of uh, bears that are endemic to the place. We have a lot of bird watchers. We have also vegetation. I mean, you will not believe that there's at least 2,200 uh, vegetation species that are only found at that altitude in the whole world. Wow. Yeah. At that altitude of uh, between 2,000, 3,000 um, meters above sea level. So there's a whole interest. Sometimes we actually get people from the UK, from the Royal Botanical Gardens, that come regularly to come and um, get species to propagate and all other people that do come to get a species for dry flower a collection. So, yes, it's a whole vegetation mecca, if you want to yeah. call it. Yeah. And the birds, obviously, the animals, although we don't get as many wild animals as uh, the place used to have, again, because of, of overgrazing. You know that a lot of the people in the mountains, because of the rugged nature of the terrain, they don't have a lot of um, farmland. So a lot tend to subsist on animal farming. Mm -hmm. A lot of which is uh, sheep and goats. And those are the ones that you find in, in large numbers. And in summer, they do go up by us there because it's cool it's warmer and in winter when it snows they go down uh, to the foothills where it is warmer okay so that area is known for woolen mohair and as you know because of the clean nature of the woolen mohair the lesotho woolen mohair clip which get auctioned at the international auction in pe is the cleanest of the the whole mohair wool that you can actually get in South Africa. And what used to happen, I don't know if it still does happen now, but when I was at the the Development Corporation, it was one of my projects. What used to happen is that the South African clip for export was then blended with the high-quality wool uh, and mohair from Lesotho so that it um, enhances <laughs> the, the quality, quality of the South African clip, <laughs> yeah, mm. because the sheep and the goats don't have a lot of bushes mm. that make it um, dirty, so it's, it's, it's very pristine and very clean. So we have sheep, uh, sheep shearing during season as well for people who haven't seen shearing the sheep, so it's actually a skill that is nice to watch and we offer during season after winter. Yeah. Okay. What else is there? Oh, yes, the last thing. Um, the bearded vulture. The bearded vulture is endemic there, I think, in, in the whole area, in the whole southern area. So uh, one of the things that we've been trying to do is to actually... Uh, we are involved with organizations that uh, are trying to conserve their species. In fact, two days ago, uh, we worked with a lady who collects the eggs and hatches them in an effort to 
uh, to propagate this dying species. Mm. So people come from all over the world to come and see this majestic bird whose uh, wingspan sometimes uh, spans a whole meter hmm. on either side. So it, it, it's actually a very lovely bird to see. So, yeah, those are some of the attractions. Um, that is within Sunny itself. And in road into Mokokong, we have a very uh, um, historic site uh, of one of the Robben Island prisoners called Ling Alangale Balele, who had fled um, the Boer persecution mm-hmm. and hid there in Mokokong. And unfortunately, he was captured. But the caves in which he used to stay, or he was in exile, and uh, there for about, I think, four or five years, are still there, and we trying to package a a tour, you know, for for that history. It's almost like Robin Island. Yeah. I mean, a little Robin Island because of this historic. Um, because once he was captured, then he was sent to Robin Island. Okay. And how long does it take from Sani to Mokhotlong? Uh, good question. You know, uh. don't trust the maps. <laughs> or we never used to trust the maps initially. Mm. You know, when we started, which was around 2010, the trip used to take three hours one way. Wow. Because of the poor state of the, of the road. In fact, when we came, we usually came from Maseru. We would have to travel the whole day and then overnight at the chief's place in Mokotong and then start early in the morning, three o'clock, only to get to sunny like midday or even after lunch. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? I mean, it was horrendous. It was horrendous. Now, you can imagine trying to get money from a banker <laughs> and he says come on i mean do people even get there yeah. I think maybe 2017 18 there was this award to this chinese company that has done the most magnificent road um now it takes about 45 minutes an hour from sunny to mokotlong so it's just a breeze unbelievable so that is how long it takes, yeah. And at the time, there was no facilities for shopping anywhere. I mean, we had to cut stock from underbed, mm. you know, uh, all the time, every time. I mean, the owner that we bought the lodge from, even cake, he used to get from underbed. Even laundry, he used to do in in underbed because there's no infrastructure there, nothing, zilch, zip zero. There's no ESCOM, there's no LEC, which is an equivalent of the electricity corporation in Lesotho. So you are just there mm. by yourself. And yeah, um, but now there's a checkers there. I mean, we're jumping up and down in Mokotlung for this checkers. So at least some of the supplies we get from there, but most of the supplies we still get from uh, from Antibes. Okay. Khabametsi, tell us about the facilities at, at, the, at the lodge. 
Okay. Um, we have the main lodge, which is the location of the highest pub, mm-hmm. which comprises a combination of family rooms and rendezvous that sleep, you know, either couple or two people. Yeah. The family rooms sleep between six and eight people. Okay. You know, with bunk beds for people with children and so forth. So in that uh, facility, we can sleep about 33 people and about half a kilometer away we have our backpackers which is obviously a backpacker offering uh, which has domestry type um, accommodations uh, of different configurations which we sleep about 22 people now we are embarking on an extension of the backpackers in an upgrade of it a little bit, which will maybe add another another twenty people in a wool shed that we will convert into accommodation. You know, money uh, willing yeah. if money is available. Exactly. That backpackers lodge is that an old trading store? That is an old yeah. gym, still correct. And it's very cold at night. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The whole place is cold. Even the Lord. I'm telling you, Holger. Yeah. And that is one of the things that uh, is in my list uh, because now I had to start with the infrastructure, you know, the water yes. and the, the articulation. At least those were basic things that I needed to to, to start with now. Still have to work on the sewerage. Now, the next big thing is the heating, the heating inside the rooms. Mm. Uh, and as you can imagine, I need to do double glazing yeah. to conserve whatever little heat from our wood banners inside the rooms. Uh, and that is why it is still very cold. Yeah. I'm now embarking on a project. We've done everything that uh, we've done, the investigation of what needs to be done. We have to change all the glazing. We have to 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 plug in all little doorways, if not change them all together, <laughs> so that we improve um, the ventilation of yeah actually make sure that the heat doesn't escape. Um, yeah, we'll get there. But yes, it is still very cold. And the camping, is there also camping available? Yes, we do provide camping. Okay. Uh, I don't even know. Some campers are so brave. I mean, the winds would be howling. In fact, I would be scared for them to be blown <laughs> over the pass. Yeah. Because when those winds are howling, it's not a child's play. Yeah. But yes, we do have a, a couple of camp, campsites okay. for, for, for campers. But it, yeah. but it is rough rough and cold. I mean, the one thing that f- fascinates me is that when, when, when the wind blows, you have to park your car facing the wind. So when you open the doors, they don't get blown off. It is through hard experience. Yeah. People's uh, door, uh, car doors have been blown away. Yeah, I can imagine. Literally, I am telling you, they have been blown yeah. away. So I'm a small person. I don't, I don't walk, you know, near those cliffs on no. windy days because 
<laughs> I fear that actually I'll just be blown off. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that um, if I had enough money, I wish to do a barrier along the whole escarpment mm. so that, you know, uh, people have a little bit of a barrier mm. uh, when they walk there on, on even on clear days you know you never know yeah so yeah you should put up mm. a wind turbine for for electricity you know what Holga? Uh, we there's nothing that we haven't looked at in oh, fact okay. i think government has also <laughs> looked at that as well yeah. because the the assumption was so much wind yeah. there that you know that is a natural but the people never estimated the velocity of mm. the the wind it's too strong they put some too strong. Mm. They put some turbines there just to do a pilot. When they came back, they they found no turbines. They, <laughs> they were gone, blown away. But as you know, there's a huge capital out there yeah. up front that you need to have, which obviously I don't have. I mean, that solar system there cost me a whole arm and a leg. Yeah, I can imagine. And I had to make sure that it's working properly. It's monitored from Johannesburg here. Nothing should go wrong. And, oh, it's a whole fit. Yeah. So it'd rather take a little longer, but it's got to be a, a, a solution for long when it does actually happen. So this heating inside rooms is, is the next phase of what I would like to do. Wonderful. Just in closing, can you give us a, a few tips that one needs to know when traveling to Sani from, from South Africa? One of the tips would have been don't look at the map and think, you know, two kilometers is going to take you 20 minutes. So yeah. That is yeah. generally not only to, to, to Sani, but because of the, the quality of our road system in the whole country, and another thing, you know, when we were still, we still are very small. People would just rock up there, I mean, and would have no facilities for them to sleep. So we'd have to make beds in the curio shop, in the dining room, <laughs> in the lounge. <laughs> okay, so the one tip is they have to they have to book. <laughs> Sometimes you don't because you underestimated the time yeah. and you just rock up there and we can't send you away. We have to reopen the kitchen to make you food. Yeah. And, you know, and when we have rugby matches you know there would be this rugby people that come you dare not you know you dare not get out of the bar they will have to celebrate especially with the springbok mm. wins you know you'd have to wait until like three o'clock when they finish the celebrations <laughs> and would have given all our best by now and so my partner and i would then hovel into the dining room put our mattresses for the two hours before Five, we have to wake up. I mean, you know, the stories just go on and on, you know. <laughs> but for travel's sake, um, yeah, always be careful in terms of the distances. But the, the distance to the lodge is very predictable now because it's tied the whole way to the lodge. So you can trust the normal way of judging distances. But elsewhere, just be careful and try and find out. Is the road upgraded? Is it not? How bad it is? Mm. We try to keep as much information for our guests in terms of, you know, the state of the different roads. And two, obviously the weather. Check the weather. 
because sometimes you don't check the forecast and then you get stuck in the snow. Yeah. And because of poor relief servicing, you, you may be stuck there, you know. And because there are no, like, filling stations and, and them and them, always just have, you know, a, a few liters of, of petrol mm. just in case and a few supplies uh, just in case you get a breakdown or you are snowed in or something like that. Dress warmly and make sure you have enough warm clothes, blankets and whatever. Because if you get stuck in the snow, I mean, you'll have to sleep there. Yeah. And when you go up the pass, make sure to have a 4 by 4 vehicle, not a 2 by 4 because you never know unless you check maybe prior with the lodge to uh, request, you know, the status of the road. Because sometimes when there hasn't been a lot of rain and snow, you can still make it on a four by two. But please just check. Just check, yeah. Okay. Huh? And the border, when when does the border close? Um, our border is still a bush border. Okay. Uh, it's not a commercial <laughs> border. <laughs> so it still closes at 6, uh, 6 a.m., 6 in the evening. Okay. And there's a toll at the gate, a minimal toll. So, and for other people, check your visas before you come because there are some countries uh, for which you need a visa. Where can people find out more about the the lodge? Our website, Sunny Mountain Escape. Okay. That is our website, and all the information is there. Kapa Metsi, thank you so much for for sharing so much information about this place, and with so much enthusiasm. It's not what I expected. <laughs> is that so? Yeah. Thank you. Kapa Metsi, before I let you go, we still have to talk about beer. Because this is the highest pub in Africa. We have to do something about the beer. One of the things that um, is in my pipeline is also a brewery, you know, a small artisan brewery. Well, there you go. <laughs> you see. So maybe you have a few ideas or you can put me on to people that we can cooperate with in that regard. Um, so, uh, you know... Because it's it's a destination in itself, and if that, if anything, adds more to 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 the uh, to the interest. Yeah. So yeah, I think a brewery is a fantastic addition to any destination, mm. um, and I think there's a number of options, and uh, I would really like to discuss those with you. What a fantastic way to end this journey to the top of Sani, to the highest pub in Africa. Guest was Hapametsi Maleke. My name is Holger Meyer and I travel the world in search of beer and adventure.